0: Well, thank you, Malad. and uh, we are continuing today in our uh, series on the, the, uh, the God you need to know. Uh, we've been worshiping him, singing about uh, him in our worship time through scripture, and uh, just want to continue on today. If you have your Bibles with you or they're on your devices, I would encourage you to take them out. We're going to be looking at a, a section out of Psalm 119 today. Um, Some other scripture as well, but primarily in Psalm 119, and so I would invite you to uh, take your Bibles and and follow along. I I once had a, a college prof who took a particular approach to any disagreements that we may have with him over how he graded our assignments. He would say to us, I may not always be right, but I'm never wrong. I thought that was kind of a clever line, and so I had decided to try it in our marriage. Uh. You will notice that I used the past perfect tense of the verb. Do they still teach that in school, the, the, the verb tenses? Okay, well, anyways, I used the past perfect tense as I said this to you, because after using it about once, it made perfect sense to leave it in the past. This morning we're going to talk about the God who is always right. When the Bible speaks about God always being right, it literally means that he's never wrong. It can truthfully be said of God that he is always right and he is never wrong. Not only is this true, but in actuality, God defines what right is. The always being right nature of God is called the righteousness of God. Righteousness means that God always acts in keeping with what is right and that he is the final authority on deciding what is right and wrong. Writing about this aspect of God's being, Moses stated, he is the rock, his deeds are perfect, everything he does is just and fair. He is a faithful God who does no wrong. How just and upright he is. And then God directed the prophet Isaiah to write, These words, I, the Lord, speak only what is true and declare only what is right. Since God is always right, this means that every decision he makes regarding us is right on target. He is a God you can depend upon, no exceptions, a straight arrow God. Over the years, I've looked for people who I would consider to be straight shooters to speak into my life. I, I need people who will be honest with me and tell me what I need to hear, not what they think I want to hear. I've chosen these people very carefully. It's not the kind of thing about which I would make an announcement and put up a sign-up sheet. I mean, somehow I just couldn't see announcing pastors looking for straight-arrow speakers into his life. A sign-up sheet is at the information desk. I'm I'm afraid there might be too many willing people to uh, sign up for that. And so when it comes to having someone tell you the truth about yourself, it is important to select those who have your best interests at heart who believe in you, and and are out to see you succeed. And so in the first church where I became the lead pastor, I had sought out a man to speak into my life in this way. He was a few years older than me, and as a young pastor, he saved me from making some major mistakes more than once. We became really good friends. When it came time for us to leave that church, I took him out for dinner. And I told him how grateful I was for his honest and open response to me. I knew that he would always give me a straightforward answer that he would, and he would give it in kindness. We need to have straight shooters in our lives. They can keep us from heading off in the wrong direction and missing out on opportunities to reach our fullest potential. And I want to stand before you this morning and say that God can be that kind of person to us. As the one who always knows the right thing to do and the right thing to say, he is a friend on whom we can fully rely. This is how David viewed God when he wrote this description in Psalm 119. And I'm reading from the message translation. You are right and do right, good God. Your decisions are right on target. You rightfully instruct us in how to live ever faithful to you. My rivals nearly did me in. They persistently ignored your commandments. Your promises have been tested through and through, and I, your servant, love it dearly. I'm too young to be important, but I don't forget what you tell me. Your righteousness is eternally right. Your revelation is the only truth. Even though troubles came down on me hard, your commands always gave me delight. The way you tell me to live is always right. Help me understand it so I can live to the fullest. David's history with God has been one where God's actions towards him, God's instruction to him, God's promises and God's commandments have all shown how right God is. David sees God as always acting rightly towards him, causing him to conclude, you are right and you do right, God. Your decisions are right on target. In his nature, in his response to us, in his laws, God has proven himself to be a righteous God. This righteousness has the potential to completely revolutionize our lives, our communities, our world my wife's maiden name is patterson spelled with two t's i've discovered that this is a significant distinction since the name patterson can also be spelled with one t the two t pattersons trace their ancestral roots back to ireland while the one t pattersons are scottish in their ancestry So ingrained is this distinction that whenever those who have the surname Patterson meet, the very first question out of their mouths is, are you a 1T or a 2T, Patterson? My wife's ancestral roots being Irish has led her to include a copy of the book, How the Irish Saved Civilization, on our bookshelves at home. My background is Welsh. And not to be outdone, I have, humbly, I, I have humbly argued for how the Welsh have saved Christianity. And I point to the righteous revolution that swept through Wales at the beginning of the 1900s. Known as the Welsh revival, the effects had a profound impact not only on individuals, but on whole communities. Indeed, society itself was changed. People with long-standing delinquent debts repaid them. Church and family feuds were healed. Drunkenness and promiscuity all but stopped. Crime declined so much to such a degree that jails and police stations were closed. Magistrates would often show up at court and have no cases to judge. Pastors weren't breaking traffic laws. In the coal mines, the pit ponies, used to pull the ore carts, refused to work because they could not understand the orders that were given to them. They had become so accustomed to being beaten and sworn at that they didn't know what to do when spoken to and treated kindly. The men in the mines worked with renewed vigor that sent production figures soaring. The news of the revival spread across the ocean to the United States and Canada and as far away as Australia. The impact of this righteous revolution continued on for years to come. I wonder sometimes what it would take to experience a righteous revolution. What would it be like to live in a righteous city or a righteous nation or a righteous world? To go a step further, what would it be like to, to work for a righteous company or attend a righteous school, or live in a righteous family? And how about this one? What would it be like to go to a righteous church? No more arguing over music preferences or worship styles or doctrinal differences. Everyone would be made to feel important, and the services would always begin and end on time. You may think that this is only wishful thinking, and dismiss it as either unrealistic or maybe even boring. You see, we've become so accustomed to living in an unrighteous world. We've been beaten down and hurt and called all kinds of things so often like that like those pit ponies, we don't know quite how to respond to the prospect of living in a righteous environment. As David looked around him, there was much that troubled him about the unrighteousness of his day, causing him to state, My rivals nearly did me in. They persistently ignored your commandments. David is distraught over the blatant disregard of God's laws by those around him to the extent that he is almost emotionally overcome by it all. Although he sees God as a straight arrow God, he also recognizes that people habitually ignore God's straight shooting and disobey his righteous laws. They take his arrows and break them, leading to broken arrow living. Broken, arrow lives are out of control. When we see brokenness and unrighteous actions, we often feel overwhelmed. Stories of murder, rape, enslavement, and a host of other abusive acts fill news reports on a daily basis. The deliberate, cowardly, unprovoked attack on innocent people is infuriating to me. And I suspect that many of you feel the same way. Why do we become so angry with senseless brutality? Well, I think at least part of the reason is because God has placed within us a longing after rightness. When we are wrong, we are, when we see wrong prevailing over what we understand to be right, we are angered. If we feel this way, you can imagine the pain and dismay that would be in the mind and heart of a totally righteous God. God is not dispassionate about unrighteousness. He hates it. So why doesn't he step in and do something about it, you may ask? Well, let me say that he has. And he has done so by suffering the most dramatic act of violence and shedding of innocent blood that this world has ever witnessed. He gave his one and only son to be brutally killed on a cross to pay for all of the acts of violence and willful unrighteousness carried out by humanity. And so the Apostle Peter wrote, that's what Christ did definitively. Suffered because of others' sins. The righteous one for the unrighteous ones. He went through it all, was put to death, and then made alive to bring us to God. God is very passionate about righteousness and justice prevailing. He has deliberately taken action to make every, to set everything right. He has made it possible for everyone to be released from the brokenness caused by sin. He is into the business of redeeming broken arrows and making them to shoot straight again. In a most outrageous act of love, God has taken the initiative to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Through Jesus, he wants to place within us the ability to live rightly. The Apostle Paul put it this way, But in our time, something new has been added. What Moses and the prophets witnessed to all those years has happened. The God setting things right that we read about has become Jesus setting things right for us. And not only for us, but for everyone who believes in him. Out of, the sheer gener- out of sheer generosity, God put us in right standing with himself, a pure gift. He got us out of the mess we're in and restored us to where he has always wanted us to be. And he did it by means of Jesus Christ. Amen. God is most interested in setting everything right and providing us with hope and a secure future. We just don't know how badly he wants to bring about a righteous revolution in the world. He wants to set it all right, everything and everyone. Even so, God is not a thug who breaks into our lives to steal away our free will or grab control of us in some overwhelming matter. Instead, he gives us space to live as we choose, and he grieves when we insist on setting our lives straight without his intervention. And so when reckless people burn and loot villages or set off car bombs or shoot a hail of bullets into unsuspecting crowds or cheat on spouses or molest children or swindle the unsuspecting elderly out of their life's savings and everything within us cries out, someone stop the madness. God simply says to us, You can't live your lives outside of the boundaries of my righteousness and hope to be at peace with yourselves and with others. You can't live as you please and expect to escape the effects of self-serving, self-absorbing lifestyles. You can't have it both ways. The willingness to accept responsibility for our unrighteous behavior is one of the hardest things for us to do. We are quick to point fingers. It started from the very first act of unrighteousness ever committed. Adam said to God when confronted with his disobedience, this, this woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. I mean, what else am I supposed to do? And weak-kneed husbands have been using this line ever since. We are good at making up excuses to deflect the blame from ourselves. Honest, officer, I was only speeding because this guy behind me was about to run me over, and I just had to stay ahead of him. Oh, you think I use foul language? You should hear blank. Or as a well-known hockey player said after sucker-punching another player and breaking his neck, I'm not a violent person. And the excuses go on and on. My mother mistreated me as a child. I was always picked on at school. I'm under a lot of pressure right now. I can't help it. It's just the way I am. But in the end, none of the excuses we make work well. All of them eventually break down, leaving us exhausted, defeated, and feeling miserable. That's the realization David reached when he concluded, your righteousness is eternally right. Your revelation is the only truth. Even though troubles came down on me hard, your commands always gave me delight. David acknowledged that God is a righteous God and that his righteous ways brought delight and fulfillment to him. Sure, there would be tough times along the way. But God could always be depended on to do what was right, to see him through and to ensure that justice prevails. Into this world of turmoil and unrest, God wants to launch a righteousness revolution. He aims to bring his liberation from the devastating effects of unrighteous behavior. He is a straight arrow God who can be depended upon to always do what is right. And when we really believe this and live accordingly, then God's straight arrow shooting finds its mark. It strikes the bullseye of our lives and enables us to live right on target. David tells us what it is like to be in the place where we acknowledge God's ways to be right. The way you tell me to live is always right. Help me understand it so I can live to the fullest. On one occasion, my wife and I were listening to an IW missionary speaker tell of her experience while traveling in Congo, Africa. She was attempting to catch a flight that, had, that kept being canceled at the last minute. She calmly told of how this continued over a period of an entire week before she was finally able to arrive at her destination. My wife leaned over to me while she was telling her story and with a bit of a glint in her eye asked, how do you think you would have been responding if that was happening to you? She knew me all too well. A time when Janie and I were flying to Lisbon, Portugal for a conference came to mind. Our flight had originated in Warsaw and required a stopover in Munich where we were to change planes. We were delayed in leaving Warsaw because of a snowstorm in Munich. and By the time we eventually took off, I knew that it would be tight for us to make our connecting flight. The whole flight was a combination of me glancing at my watch and, and trying to figure out how much time we would have after we landed to actually get to the gate where we were scheduled to leave. When it became obvious that we likely were not going to make it, I asked a flight attendant if the departing flights in Munich were being delayed. She responded by saying that she assumed that if the incoming flights were delayed, the outbound ones would be as well. Bad assumption. When we landed, an announcement was made over the aircraft's public address system that passengers that were traveling on to Madrid, not to Lisbon, but to Madrid, would be met by a waiting vehicle at the bottom of the plane staircase and whisked over directly to where the plane was departing. Janie and I assumed that if our connecting flight was making an imminent departure, that similar transportation would have been arranged for us. Again, bad assumption. We arrived at the gate from where our flight was leaving just in time to see the plane being pushed back from the gate. I stood there bewildered and annoyed. They knew we were coming. We were hardly ten minutes late. Surely they would have delayed leaving so that we could we could have aborted. And I, was, I wanted to express my opinion to the agent at the gate, but realized that in doing so, I would only delay our trip to the service counter to arrange another flight, so I headed off with luggage and Janie in tow. By the time we arrived at the transfer station to see what our flight options were, a line had already started to form. A frustrated sigh escaped from within me, but did not go unnoticed by my wife. There were two agents at the service counter, so I assumed things would go fairly uh, rapidly. I must stop making these assumptions. As we got closer to the counter, I overheard the agent to whom everyone was reporting first tell a passenger that she could only search for flights that were available at her station. He would need to go to her colleague at the next counter in order to be actually issued a ticket. Now I realized that I was going to have to stand in another line. I muttered to my wife, This hardly matches what I've come to understand about German efficiency. And I planned to let the agent know my thoughts when I got to the counter. Janie, who is much more righteous than me, said, Honey, there's nothing that can be done. We just have to be patient. That got me thinking. I started to ask myself reluctantly at first, What would a righteous person do in this situation? I thought a righteous person would likely stop being annoyed at people who were not to blame for a situation that was totally beyond their control. And so I stopped my huffing and puffing. Then I thought a righteous person would likely smile and be pleasant. So when it was our turn to speak with the agent, I smiled and greeted her kindly. Then I thought a righteous person probably would not tap their boarding pass impatiently on the countertop. So I laid my defunct pass down and put my hands in my pockets to keep me from reaching out and picking them up again. A righteous person would certainly show gratitude, and so I thanked the agent who eventually dispensed our tickets. And suddenly I I could feel my pulse easing, and I'm sure my blood pressure dropped. Other flight arrangements were made with no problems, and we arrived at our destination only a couple of hours late. But I learned a valuable lesson in an area of my life that still requires a lot of work. Instead of growing angry, upset, and self-righteous, I could let God start a righteous revolution in me. I could begin to actually live like a righteous person. I could commit myself to follow in God's ways, to truly believe that how he tells me to live is always right, and to daily ask him to help me understand what right living really looks like. It isn't as hard as you or I may think. It simply requires looking to God for our understanding of right and wrong. It means giving our lives over to Jesus and actually learning to do what Jesus would have us do. It takes seeing ourselves as a righteous revolutionary and allowing God to do his straight arrow shooting in our lives. It means being willing to do our part to make a difference when it comes to living rightly. Of all of the names that are linked with the 1904 Welsh Revival, Evan Roberts is probably the best known. At 26 years of age, in the autumn of 1904, he was to become an instant spiritual celebrity in Wales as the local and national newspapers of the day chronicled the spreading religious revival. His celebrity status was highlighted by the fact that he was relatively unknown. He wasn't even a fully licensed preacher in 1904. He was merely a trainee attending a grammar school to prepare him for the ministry course. He had left school when only 11 years and 9 months old to help his father in the local coal mine. Having worked in the coal mine for 12 years, he then became an apprentice to a blacksmith for over a year. He left that calling when he felt a greater call to reach people for Christ. Two weeks after arriving at the training school for pastors, Evan had a deliberate and a dynamic encounter with God that started a righteous revolution within him. Within a month, he felt compelled to share this message of the righteousness of God and the possibility of complete forgiveness of sins with his home church youth group. His message could be summed up in four points. Confess all known sin. Deal with and get rid of anything doubtful in your life. Be ready to obey the Spirit instantly. Confess Christ publicly. By the end of the week, over 60 had responded. By the end of the second week, Evan had already started on a whirlwind tour of South Wales, and within a year or so, 100,000 new Christ followers were said to be added to the Welsh church. Into this world, God wants to bring an ongoing righteous revolution. He wants people to understand the full impact of him setting things right for them. He wants them to embrace Jesus as the one who makes everything right in their lives and brings them into right understanding and right standing with God. He is searching for people who are ready and willing to give themselves to right thinking, to right living, to right faith. You can be that person. You can let a righteous revolution start within you. Through the empowering presence of the Spirit of Christ, you have the capacity to serve as an infectious agent for righteousness. Deep in our hearts, I believe we all want to do right. We want to know and experience a God who is always right and never wrong. I would put forward to you that the the God we get to know in the Bible is this kind of God. He is the God who, who has always wanted He is the God that you have always wanted to know, and He is ready to set things right in your life if you choose to step away from your fears and failures and invite Him to lead you into truth and right living. Let's pray. Now, Father, as we have thought and given some thought to this topic this morning, the scripture is pretty clear on instructing us in your rightness, and your righteousness. Sometimes we don't always sense that that's a reality in our lives. Or in the space in which we live. But Father, we believe that what the scriptures state about you and the, and the righteousness that you bring to this world is true. You have always brought your righteousness in and through people. People that you have empowered and filled with your spirit. And so I pray this morning that you will help us to see how we fit into that picture. How we can be instruments of your peace and righteousness in the world in which you've placed us. And so Father, we just lay ourselves before you and ask that you would do your work of grace and instruction in our lives. In the name of Jesus. Amen. There's a word from that song that just stuck out at me, and I just sense that this is the word that I need to share with you as you leave. God saying, be blessed. Be blessed, my friends. Be blessed by my understanding that I know everything that's going on in your life. Be blessed by the fact that I'm a straight arrow shooting God. Be blessed by my peace. Be blessed by my love. Be blessed by my righteousness. In the name of Jesus. We do have our prayer team members who are available to assist you if you have prayer need this morning and we would just invite you to make your way to the front uh, as we are dismissed and they will be more than eager to pray with you. Blessing of God. Amen.